0: The Mirai botnet stands out among others because it takes advantage of the fact that millions of IoT and OT devices lack the concept of least privilege and therefore run the risk of active infection and exploitation. Least privilege means limiting user access to only what they need, not the full spectrum of access. In the past, OT devices were left wide open under the assumption that no one unauthorized would ever try to connect. Well, times have changed. In October of 2016, the Mirai botnet commandeered hundreds of thousands of Internet-connected surveillance cameras and trained those resources on Dyn, an Internet service provider. This attack was successful in that it managed to knock out East Coast Home Internet Service, while also crippling service to major companies such as Netflix and Twitter. Here's Fox 5 News in New York.
1: Through something called a botnet, basically taking control of unsecured smart home devices like cameras and TVs and using them to create something of a robot army that can overwhelm websites and knock down servers. It was huge.
0: The ability that it had to simultaneously recruit hundreds of thousands of improperly secured Internet of Things devices made it something no one had ever really seen before.
1: That October 2016 Mariah attack on Dyne, the one that knocked out East Coast Internet and temporarily crippled companies like Netflix and Twitter, wasn't launched by the three men who pled guilty, but by creating Mariah, they did let the proverbial tiger out of the cage. In fact, over a six-month period, Mariah was reportedly responsible for more than 15,000 different attacks.
0: Mirai exposed something that we all knew was a problem, and it provided the right code to exploit it. While the three college students who originally developed the Mirai code have each pled guilty, the code itself lives on today, and it continues to be refined and repurposed, exposing an even bigger problem of unprotected device access. This is the story of how we might mitigate the security risks to the millions of unauthenticated devices already out in the field and why we should introduce basic authentication in new devices that we deploy. I'm Robert Mosey. This is Error Code.
1: So my name is Ron Fabella, field CTO at Zona Systems. Uh, Zona Systems is a secure user access platform specifically built for OT. So perhaps we should begin with the definition of OT. Oh boy, the definition of OT. So operational technology, I've heard folks say that it's just whatever IT isn't, uh, which is too broad of a term. But OT, uh, at least in my experience, is the umbrella term for anything that is industrial or kind of cyber physical connected or digital to physical connected, where really the person doesn't know what else to call it. (laughs) Um, And so some examples, other examples of OT, you know, you hear industrial control systems or ICS. You do hear now because of Gartner cyber physical systems, uh, which is interesting. But yeah, you know, OT is just that umbrella term. We're going to talk about some other terms, one of which is X IoT. I, I was just watching something where they were like, hey, X IoT is you have IoT, then you have OT, right? Industrial. And then you have industrial, uh, um, like, you know, Internet of Industrial Things. No, like, OT is not IoT at all. I know it, it shares two of the letters. My internet connected toaster is not a control center in a power plant. Like, oh, you know. I actually don't have a problem with X IoT. Uh, I used to get tripped up over
0: IIoT because I thought it was kind of clunky and probably wasn't going to fly.
1: My my background in industrial, you know, I started in a lot of the detection market. So I was early at Drago's, found know, founded Insabre, and now I'm at Zona. And um, fi- watching the cybersecurity folks catch up to nomenclature is is funny to me, right? Because like you said, like we've been talking embedded systems for decades now. Uh, IoT is not a new term. But for cybersecurity, they're just like, have you guys heard about these internet connected things? And oh my God, they're in the power plant or they're in the manufacturing floor. Now you're like, yeah, guys, we've had cameras and temperature sensors there forever. And then there was the internet of everything. Uh,
0: Again, it didn't really fly, didn't really work. IoT is pretty encompassing, but
1: to Ron's point, OT is much more of an umbrella term. There's renewed hype, which again, I, I tend to dehype things, right? And pr- try to bring context, but it is nice to see this. I don't want to say second surge, right? But like, like you were saying, IoT a decade ago and even industrial control cybersecurity a decade ago, like we were the standard bearers and now we're tired. I'm just like, oh, we're going to talk about insecure by design again or so like with the new government um uh, yes. what were they calling it like essentially like the energy star but for iot security like i'm trying not to get jade and i'm like excited like ooh, there's a new surge of interest in this like go get it guys because i'm tired <laughs> um yeah
0: and finally cyber physical i find it to be very descriptive i'm actually okay with using that term
1: i love it because it's not an acronym so it's descriptive in its name you know, I'm an old hat from back in the day. Cyber had a, a whole different meaning in the '80s. So, <laughs> uh, cyber physical, and I've and I've seen some folks say, "Let's get cyber physical." It, you know, the 14 year old boy, in me just chuckles. But cyber physical systems, I I think is the larger umbrella term than OT because as we'll probably discuss, IoT or Internet, you know, connected things don't necessarily always mean OT in the sense of industrial. And so I think cyber-physical, this interaction between the digital and the physical or the kinetic side, it's self-descriptive and it makes a lot of sense.
0: Okay. That's an interesting point. Can you really separate IoT from OT these days?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, I always like to say that the I is doing the heavy lifting in this acronym. So internet is critical. A lot of what people think of OT systems or industrial control systems are not directly connected to the internet, at least not yet. So these are what you would think of like power plants, oil refineries, uh, food manufacturing, etc. Those fall under the OT umbrella because they're industrial control where IOT, the other end of the, the pendulum is my internet connected toaster, my light bulb, et cetera, that I have an app on my phone that I can control out of convenience. And so that's kind of the two ends of the spectrum, but then all the gray area in the middle, right? What if you have industrial control devices that also call back to a SaaS or a cloud service for the purposes of diagnostics, that's where the IoT and OT starts to mush together. If I use the term Internet of Shit, just take that out of. The- Why? <laughs> I Why? love that term. By the way,
0: <laughs> it is. Um, I mean, all this crap yeah. is connecting to the internet. Who? Who thought of that?
1: Yeah. No, I actually have a server in the garage, and I created a, a VLAN called the Internet of Shit just so for a while. I got on this kick, Rob, where I would buy every knockoff device I could find on Amazon. Every smart plug, smart bulb, whatever. And I threw it all on that uh, network to monitor it. And um, I don't know why I thought I was going to find something revealing or like inspirational. No, all this stuff's talking to AWS anyway. It's not like it's phoning home to some Chinese ISP, right? We've gotten smarter. Maybe a decade they were doing that, but not anymore. It's all going out of US East 1, right? So one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to Ron was this idea of zero
0: trust in IoT and OT. I'm kind of a cynic about the whole concept of zero trust or least privileges or whatever we're calling it these days. But at Black Hat USA 2023, it was full of zero trust this and zero trust
1: that. I asked Ron how he would define zero trust in this environment. Loaded question. I love it. So zero trust, I think... Um again, not to be too jaded on new terms, pushing forward old concepts, right? But we used to call this least privilege. We used to call this uh, defense in depth, right? Um, it used to be these, these concepts and terms that you would bring together into an environment in our enclave to provide security. So zero trust in this concept is to bring all these older ideas together and to formulate it in a way where you say, hey, we can't trust users, devices, et cetera, in the same way that we could. So let's get more granular with our controls. And we see that now constantly, right? Um, Even in OT, where you'd use VPNs or jump posts, and then you would just have access to a couple subnets or entire network blocks. Folks are finally realizing, hey, that doesn't follow least privilege and it definitely doesn't follow this new zero trust thing. Um, So we need to start being more intentional about user access and trust of that, hence the zero trust, which is very negative connotation. We don't trust anyone.
0: So typically, OT devices they don't really have the resources or the capacity for authentication or authorization. So really, you're looking at networks to provide that enforcement.
1: and and in OT, it's almost even worse than that. and Not to be a cynic, but you know, um, it, the OT environments, at least the industrial control and what you think of power plants, oil gas, etc., they were built on a trust everything model out of reliability and and and. Um, you know, uh, uh, latency, all these other things. That's why you don't see authentication or authenticated protocols or encrypted communication paths. Um, That's why you don't see, you know, in like embedded systems with antivirus or anything else, any of the modern cybersecurity technologies you don't see in these environments because they trust everything. And so zero trust becomes hard because I call it the the crunchy outer shell in the GUI center. You can do zero trust Ish, and I'm going to do air quotes, even though no one will be able to see me do air quotes. Um, you can put these concepts at the perimeter where IT and OT start to merge, and you could control user access in a way that's not just a firewall rule for Ron's laptop. Um, but as soon as you get down into the more control, the control system aspects, there's nothing to implement there. Um, and and you know, I I like to make up cute little things like. You know, we talk a lot about multi-factor authentication. There's no factor authentication in industrial. Um, And so now with IoT, it's a bit different, right? Because of that inherent, I'm connected to the internet, I'm connected to a cloud service. There's this idea where you can use modern technology like SAML and other things to authenticate identity. They don't have that problem because it's built into the tech stack. OT, it was never built in. It was never designed for this. So to retrofit it on now is a huge challenge. So another definition is protocol isolation.
0: I'm a big critic of IoT grabbing any old protocol and shoehorning it into use today. I know, they've got to get the device to work. But really, the protocol, it wasn't always designed for what they're intending it to do. So what about this protocol isolation? And what is the thinking behind it?
1: I think the idea there is it's reducing the attack surface. So a lot of user access into control systems or critical systems is through interactive protocols, you know RDP, SSH, VNC, those kind of things, right? And we know those are all still inherently insecure. That, you know there's always a new RDP bug that's going to come out, a new SSH thing. Um, and so what we mean by protocol isolation is that uh, between the critical systems and the user, that protocol should not transverse those security zones or boundaries. And so, you know, with some technology, there, there's ways to do that, right? You're you're providing an interactive display from the user side, just in pixels on a web page. And then on the trusted side, that RDB connection is being terminated. And we're seeing that in a lot of IoT, OT, and industrial policies right now coming from Cis and the government, where they're saying, these protocols need to terminate or not transverse into enterprise or IT. And so that's, you know, in in generic terms, what protocol isolation means to us is that the end user, no matter where they are in the environment or the world, is not actually getting the RDP session. We're terminating it in the environment and then just showing them the visuals on that.
0: So yeah, lots of layering and segmentation. I'm all in favor of that. I understand that in the electrical grid, they use something called the Purdue model, which has six layers of security, and it's pretty prescribed in what can happen in each of those layers.
1: Purdue, uh, not the chicken, but the university, that's right. Um, it's a reference architecture. As you can imagine with reference architectures, when you get into the really nerdy groups in industrial, we all argue about what Purdue means and whether it's relevant still and everything else. But to your point, the idea is that like OSI layers or like um, layers in enterprise, you start at the top, which is more closer to the enterprise or the business, your layer fives, fours, etc. then you have a DMZ, which is a three and a half, and then three, two, and one, and zero, just go down the stack. So the higher up you are in the Purdue model, the more enterprise-like you are, and the lower down at level zero is literally the switches and the valves and everything that control the, the process.
0: Is that something similar to what you were describing with terminating the RDP and terminating the VNC?
1: It, exactly. Yeah, you want to, um, in the same way in enterprise, you wouldn't want to just expose RDP to the internet, but you still want to use RDP in, within your environment. So you would terminate those connections within the enterprise kind of security zone, and then maybe you know uh, have to facilitate at least traditionally a VPN into that zone before you can get access to that protocol. Uh, what we're doing is a little unique, especially for the OT, in, in that. Um, on the critical system side, we're not exposing those protocols beyond what's on that on that trusted zone. And the user is interacting on a web page and seeing what appears to them to be an RDP session, but it's just pixels on a screen. So you know, if you were to scan that box or scan that network, you'd never see 3389. You just see 443. You see the web interaction. And on the control system side, it works as intended. Um, and we see a lot of different technologies in industrial like that where you talk about Modbus, DMP3, et cetera, those protocols are never exposed directly to enterprise. They're always exposed through something else like a data historian or or some other, you know, OPC server, et cetera.
0: So we talked about CISA, and of course their focus is on infrastructure. It's in their name, which is where a lot of OT is today. And something like that is very helpful to have the government entities looking at this. Or is it better to have the companies and organizations themselves begin to figure out how to secure their own systems?
1: That's tough because I think um, I've been on both sides of this uh, pointy stick. Uh, I've helped organizations kind of fight against the regulators like your NERCs, uh, NRCs, etc., where the regulator just doesn't understand the technology. They don't understand the environment. So they make these wild assumptions about what compliance looks like. And then I've also been on the other side on government, where if you leave private industry to their own devices unregulated, um, they do everything they can to avoid compliance. And it's just dollars and cents, right? So they may not do what is best for, let's say, the greater good. And I think when you get into critical IoT or OT systems, et cetera, when it starts to have impact on the public, then all of a sudden it becomes this national security issue. So when CISA steps in, and what I've liked about CISA so far, it's more than just a, a renaming of DHS. Right? We had US CERT, we had ICS CERT. I kind of miss the ICS CERT name, but you know that's just a personal thing. What they've done though is give renewed energy to the topic and the messaging, and they've done it in a way that hasn't been prescriptive. They've, they've talked a lot about the why, why you should have zero trust, why you should have multi-factor, why you should do cyber hygiene, all these things. But they don't tell the oil and gas industry exactly how to do it. And I think that is really the role of government, unless it is regulatory compliance. Then you have to you know, flip the page and say, your you know, uh, password must be exactly this long because you're going to get measured and then fined against that. So they have to be overly prescriptive there. But I think CISA has done a great job at the messaging side, and not delving into telling asset owners or owner operators how to do things, which is great.
0: One thing I think we can all agree on, security, it's very diverse. And so one size really doesn't fit all. So how's things going to work with OT? Do we really need to wrap our brains around how different it is because it's not your enterprise system
1: mapping into a machine? And we've seen that error, and I've seen that evolution of IT companies or cybersecurity companies thinking, well, we already do monitoring and logging over here, so let's just copy and paste that into OT. And all of a sudden, nothing works or there's false positives, et cetera, especially around configuration management, patching. You hear all these horror stories about how you can't patch systems in OT or um, or even in IoT systems being deployed or uh, you know, delivered to the consumer with default credentials or hidden credentials, these are all things that we can do better in. But it is really different, but not so different in the sense that it's not solvable or that these networks aren't defendable. And what I mean by that is, like in the Purdue model, the first few layers are what you and I would, if, if it wasn't for the functionality, just think, oh, this is an enterprise system. It's Windows servers, Windows workstations, Cisco switches. You know, There's a DMZ. There's a firewall. It all makes sense to us, right? It's until you get down to the actual workstation's purpose, which is to interface with a controller on a process line. That's where it's using the specific protocols. That's where it's a little more sensitive. And we can all joke, oh, haha, it's using Windows 7. How how funny. But that's because when the application was developed to control that process, that was the supported operating system. And in the past 20 years, they've had no reason to change. And they certainly aren't changing for a security patch. <laughs> so, um, and, and I think there is opportunity there still for the owner operator to, uh, and, and this is where CISA can help—not just to say, "Hey, we value security," but the government values security. We're being forced to do these things to get the OEMs or the vendors to actually implement change. I think in the IoT space, it's a little—the tech refresh is a little more rapid. The interactions are there. And yes, they're probably still using an old library or an old import somewhere that's vulnerable. Um, those changes can be made on the fly. And if my internet-connected light bulb goes down due to a firmware upgrade, it's not the end of the world. And I think in OT, whether it is the end of the world or not, everyone will say, oh my gosh, this you cannot take down the plant. This would be the end of the world. It's like, well, guys, I know the plant goes into maintenance turns twice a year. We can patch the systems then. Um, so it's about balancing context. Also up until Stuxnet,
0: I really didn't think much about the diversity in OT systems. The fact that you have unique PLCs and you have unique RTOS based on the chipsets and so forth, that seems to be going away with the embedded Linux. Is that good, bad, or is that otherwise?
1: <laughs> we, um, I always, I, I seen this in industrial a lot where you have this expansion and then contraction, um, in the beginning, if I could get biblical, right? In the beginning, everyone had their own protocol. You know PG and E developed their own serial protocol to connect with their own systems, and each utility did this. and And then all of a sudden, you know kind of uh, universal computation and and all these things became more readily available, and they said, oh, interoperability is 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 an issue. so let's create these standards. And so now we have like twenty standards. Um, so you had this, you know, large distributed model, and then they all contracted. And I see that happening now on the embedded space, um, where they're not. It, there's value in industrial for real-time operating systems that cannot just be replaced by a Raspberry Pi or a generic CPU. Right? The timings just aren't there. The reliability's not there. When Raspberry Pi first came out, that was the the thing. Oh, I, I can build my own PLC. It's like, no, guys, it's never gonna have the timing necessary to control a process. Yeah, in my home lab here, that's perfect. I don't have to buy a thousand-dollar, you know, Siemens S7 1200. But in a real op, in production, this is not going to work. What I am seeing though is um, OEMs are seeing the value, and and I think the accessibility and the pricing is there to deliver alongside their RTOS a Linux environment, right, an ARM chip. Uh, an AMD chip that can run Docker containers or whatever. And they're seeing that value not only because there's market pressure, but I think the access to to cheaper you know, uh, system on chips, embedded systems to do that, it costs them a negligible amount of money just to throw that alongside a PLC. And so they're doing it. And I think the security community especially is seeing some value from that. Now we can put in all our tools, our monitoring, our remote access, whatever the case may be, start to bring in these more modern concepts in there because we're still not disrupting the industrial process, which is always first and foremost.
0: So rather than something like a new Stuxnet, which was quite extraordinary in its day and still is to some degree, are there OT attacks and are they becoming the industry's problem or is awareness allowing us
1: to mitigate them? I'll start least hype busting and then work my way up. So the the interesting thing is that um, this is observation bias, I think, where there's, there's enough focus, both from government, from vendors, from the community, where they're looking for cyber problems and lo and behold, we're finding cyber problems. And so I think there's a little bit of that. Um, anytime you hear uh, a company that is, uh, I would say, specifically invested in making sure that there's new attacks every year you always have to be wary. And so, yep, Stuxnet, that was a biggie, that was real. And the reason why I like Stuxnet as a use case is because it was solely intended for an industrial environment. It's not what we see today, which is ransomware that is just running wild and it happens to hit an industrial organization. That doesn't mean it's an OT attack, right? And we're seeing this, especially now with the CLOP and the Move It uh, campaign, right? They hit an industrial organization. I have to constantly remind, uh, maybe not so much with media, because I see that as an education. But I'm a little disappointed in some of my colleagues where they say, "Oh, well, you know, this company got hacked and it's an OT." I said, "No, it was a file sharing piece of software. There's no OT access." And and I'm a little bit of a researcher and a, and a data hoarder. I look at the data that's that's being released from a like file name situation just to see is there anything of interest in there from an OT standpoint. It's not OT data. It's HR data. It's what you and I would share to each other on a Dropbox, right? And so I think what we're seeing is that there's an increase in observability in what's going on. Um, the government and talking heads like me are saying, hey, this is an issue, right? You know, we need to finally address security in IoT and OT space. Um, The telemetry is now there, so we're actually getting real data. And add on to that, the threats are increasing. So I think if you removed everything else, the threats were always increasing. So that's, you know, and I think same for whether it's industrial or enterprise, that's the answer. The threats have always been increasing. But I think OT-specific attacks, you and I can still count them on one or two hands, right? It doesn't diminish the threat, but it brings context into, well, what should we be focusing on then to actually... Protect critical infrastructure.
0: And then there's the fullness of time. For example, there's the Oldsmar water pumping station attack, which had been heralded for years as an example of a direct OT attack. A hacking attack on a water treatment plant is raising big questions about the vulnerability of critical facilities nationwide. Federal investigators are searching for a hacker who tried to poison the Oldsmar. Florida water system on Friday, just 15 miles from the Super Bowl, right before the big game. Officials say the intruder broke into the water treatment controls for about five minutes. As Jeff Pegues reports, the intent was to add too much of a dangerous chemical.
1: This is obviously a significant and potentially dangerous increase. But Nowless County Sheriff Bob Galtieri says a water treatment plant operator first noticed the remote access hack. The bad actor increased the amount of sodium
0: hydroxide or lye in the water supply from 100 parts per million to more than 11,000.
1: The public was never in danger. It would have taken between 24 and 36 hours for that water to hit the water supply system.
0: For the 15,000 residents of Oldsmar, Florida, the increase of sodium hydroxide in the water supply could have caused vomiting, chest, and abdominal pain.
1: This type of activity, and this type of hacking of critical infrastructure is not necessarily limited to just water supply systems it can be anything and
0: no report comes out years later saying it's some guy sitting at a console tinkering with the dial not really an rdp attack
1: is it that one's fascinating too because um you know team is not an ot application or protocol or anything, so you know, if we believed the first story, which we honestly had no reason to not believe, you know, they, they had the chief of police up, and uh, from my side of the industry, it was unusual because the event happened, and then there was an immediate public relations campaign. Usually, you hear about something in the back channels, and then a year later, someone does a research report because they finally found it on Virus Total. This was like in real time hey, an actor. Logged in and tried to increase, you know, this value in the system, um, but at the end of the day, it was still TeamViewer. There's nothing like OT or nothing magical about that. It's just a remote access protocol or a remote access application. So even that, and and now it's kind of been debunked, but we still don't have a proof either way. Um, I wouldn't even really consider that. And this may be controversial. I wouldn't consider that an OT attack. Someone found TeamViewer open. And they go, oh, what's this? And they started clicking on stuff. In the same way that you or I would search on Shodan for an open VNC and it goes, oh, that looks like a pump. What if I click this button? Is that an OT attack? I don't think so. So
0: I'm gonna challenge Ron and I'm gonna ask him what is a publicly known
1: attack that he would cite in the OT world? Oh boy, so if we don't cite the almighty Stuxnet. Um, there have been a few, um, and a lot of them are related to nation state. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was at dragos, the crash overrides, the trisis, these are those, um, what is called in the industry, those Cassandra events, those one time in a decade, which are now one time a year type of events where you could say, no, 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 this software, this threat actor, they were created and campaigned for the purposes of disrupting an industrial process, right? And again, I, I kind of joke, but there's maybe half a dozen of those at this point. Over, I mean, since Stuxnet, there's been maybe six or eight more. And so that's where I, I still want to say, you know, when we cite those uh, early on in the industry, we were so desperate for an example that wasn't the Aurora generator. Test way back in the day, a CNN video. I don't know if you remember that one.
0: I do remember. In 2007, researchers from the Idaho National Laboratory alarmed the federal government and the electrical energy industry with an experimental cyber attack that caused an electrical generator to self-destruct. CNN gained exclusive access to the video, which, in retrospect, seems like it was a beta test for what would later happen with Stuxnet, when a cyber attack caused the nuclear-enriching centrifuges to spin out of control and sent Iran's nuclear power program back several years.
1: That's all we had to reference for a long time. And then when Stuxnet came out, all us consultants and pen testers and everything, we go, look, see, like this is all the theoretical stuff we've been doing is actually happening. And then they go, well, you know, some nation state blew three O days and... You know, this was super specific. So, Ron, you know, this is still not relevant to me. And so, over the years, it's become better for cybersecurity because we have more use cases to reference, but it's nowhere near the enterprise level velocity where it's daily, sometimes by the hour, you're going, oh my gosh, another Palo bug, another Fortinet bug, another, you know, heartbleed, like these, you know, global type of responses. We just don't see that, but maybe once every year and a half, two years.
0: So is that a function of researchers? There just aren't enough
1: of them focused on it. It used to be um, a barrier to entry on access. Um, I could download a piece of software and fuzz it and and do what I need to do, run it into you know IDA, etc. Um, but up until I would say the past decade, it was difficult to go get a PLC or even the software. You know, like you can't just go download TIA Portal from Siemens. They're asking for serial numbers and warranties. And um, so I think there was a barrier to access. But Stuxnet kind of blew up in the gate, both from an interest and then uh, a level of access. I also think, and, and this is where, uh, with where I'm at now at Zona, the attack surface and the ability to access these systems from the public is so much more difficult. And I think some of the you know myths you'll hear is like, well, you know, why is critical infrastructure connected to the internet? Well, it's not. There's no real critical infrastructure connected directly to the internet. It's connected to enterprise, and then someone pops uh, you know a perimeter device, and then they go, Oh, what's this RDP open to you know this box? Oh, let me log in. Oh my gosh, it's the plant controls, right? That's the more likely scenario. And so there's still a barrier to entry on access. And that is, I think, both one of the reasons why the velocity and the number of use cases or the number of attacks is there. But also, and this is a little more philosophical, I still like to think that people are, are good in, in, in nature. Um, to hack a control system and to know that it's running a critical process, when your hand's hovering over the button to shut it down, you pause and you go, wait a second. What if I blow up something? What if I hurt someone? So, I think threat actors or even researchers like me, you know, if you find an open VNC on the internet and you know it's it's either a honeypot or something else and you log into it, people's ethical barriers are a little, you know, little flexible there because they know it's not going to hurt anyone. But when your hands over that button and it says, you know, close valve or increase pressure, I like to think that people pause and go wait a second. I'm going to take a screenshot, I'm going to go on Twitter and make fun of someone, but I'm not going to press the button. And I think that's why also you don't see a lot of disruption, except for a nation state, because when you get to the nation state level, they understand rules of engagement, this is an act of war. And so we're ready to take on the risk or to have the effect because we understand the the response that may come to us. Um, and, and I forget who said it back in the day, but as soon as it becomes a warheads on foreheads situation, you and me, who's just the looky-loo or the researcher trying to get a DEFCON talk, is going to stop. Where if it's dumping a database from some, you know, S3 bucket, okay, I'll do that and then post it on Onion, and you know, you know, it's just the the effects there are so much more less.
0: So do the vendors have maturity in the OT space? Do they understand the
1: security risks? Uh, they're very coin operated. And what I mean by that is for the longest time, owner operators were not demanding these security features, um, especially if it was a price per unit increase. So I have to buy a thousand PLCs, you know, let's say at $100 a unit, and at $200 a unit, it supports these security features. They're not going to buy that, right? Um, you also have the I would say the, the velocity or the lack of velocity in tech refresh and industrial, where we still have systems out there that were deployed 20, 40 years ago. Um, now the vendors, so back to your question, they have found value in promoting product security, patches, at least interactions with the government and independent researchers on security because they know it's a hot button topic, both at the board level and at the technician level. Whether it's being implemented in the field is a whole other discussion, right? And and I think it really comes down to when you have brownfield or an industrial, you know, existing environments, they may be concerned, but they're not going to change it until there is a whole refresh, and that refresh may not come for ten years. So that's why you're not seeing the the pickup there. But there is other value. Vendors are appreciating it, and kind of like with Stuxnet, uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Dylan, he. He went out and bought a S7 1200 after Stuxnet. Wanted to give a DEFCON talk on his feature, you know, on, on his findings. And you know Siemens, you know, this is when back in the day when vendors would send C Ds to researchers at, at DEFCON. We don't see that anymore, thankfully, right? We have EFF and we have CISA now as these these go betweens. Um, but they're they're less likely to hit you with the legal banhammer and more likely to interact with you because they're now seeing value out of that.
0: Ron makes a very good point. The vendors, they're reacting to the vulnerability research that's coming in, and they're issuing patches. That last mile, however, that's always been a challenge. Even for a software vendor, it's hard to get the end user to do what you ask them to do. So this is where NERC comes in, and this is where other regulatory bodies come in.
1: It, it can. Um, even then, I think the industrial... Community has done such a good job of scaring everyone and saying, "Hey, if you blow on this system, then the entire grid goes down," which is not true in the in the least. Um, even with NERC as a regulator, there are contexts and, and conditions where they they don't force you to put in a patch within thirty days, right? There's all these, um, I guess, guardrails and, and and safety nets there to to prevent disruption because that is the focus. The security is always going to be second and third to You know reliability and safety. Um, Now, I think what's fascinating too, though, is you probably see the same thing in IoT, where if there is a bug, there's a new you know botnet that's going around and, and and disrupting something. Vendors are still reluctant to force push patches down to physical devices, whether it's my toaster or the you know nuclear unit there is this hesitation to say, no, 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 we still want a user in the loop or an admin in the loop to to see that it's available and hit the button. So adoption or implementation on that last mile, I think, is a huge problem everywhere. Um, and whenever you get into a device that's physical, it becomes even more of a problem because, again, you, you kill that fir- firmware, now it's a brick, right? You don't want to deal with the RMAs and all these other issues. On the industrial control side, They definitely don't do that because they can't just go out there and swap the PLC. You know, the the plant needs to run and everything needs to be uh, in production. So it's a challenge everywhere.
0: So I know with software, you have to test it on different operating systems. You have to test it under different conditions and environments. I would imagine it's the same with replacing a PLC. It's like, you don't know all the nuances and dependencies of that system in the field. And you push out a patch, you might break five other things in the process
1: right um and so as soon as as soon as they give that assurance and i've been working with asset owners for over a decade now they'll literally get the spreadsheet that says even on the windows side these kbs are approved for install which is great because you get that validation and that confidence that it's not going to break your system but as you can imagine that means not all kbs are included <laughs> right so not everything is included because um, either maybe it failed the testing or they didn't have they weren't able to complete testing in a timely manner that's why these holes still exist let's talk about this attack surface it's pretty broad I think uh, back to your question on you know why aren't we seeing maybe even more attacks or more you know so the idea of attack surface came up, I don't want to say in the past few years, but it finally had a name, especially with, I think, ASM, like attack surface management. And um, I think for industrial, we have John Matherly to thank at Shodan. This idea that things are exposed, and you can seek out and see these exposed devices. Whether they're real critical or not is just you know an argument over beers. But these services, these devices, are still exposed to the internet where they shouldn't be. And so the idea that industrial control, internet of things, any physical device is now connected to enterprise or the internet, it's now inherited that attack surface. And all of the risk, all the vulnerabilities, all the threat actors that were targeting the internet or targeting enterprise are now just as splash damage able to target these other systems. And I think attack surface is huge and reducing the attack surface because of all the things we just discussed, it's hard to patch. Tech refresh isn't there. The, you know, Security is a secondary or tertiary priority. Um, so what else can we do? We can limit the access to those systems. Now, notice I didn't say air gap, <laughs> which is almost like other terms, like it's a unicorn. It doesn't exist. We wish it did, because it'd be cool if systems were actually air gapped. Um, but what I learned uh, a long time ago was that you can't tell operators no. Right? They have a job to do. So if they need or their vendors need access into a critical plant, the answer is no, 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 you should just air gapped it. You know, you, the answer should be, well, this is how you can do it securely. And I think that's the the next thing. And why I'm excited to see things like zero trust. Oh, I hate saying that out loud. Is that it puts a name on that effort. Right? Here's like concrete steps you can take in a zero trust architecture. And sure, they're using least privilege, and they're using all the things that we're familiar with. But it's so refreshing to see that, because that's how we can actually have a positive impact on critical systems.
0: Actually, it's refreshing to hear Ron say some of these things. Because I have challenged people before,
1: and well. It's so tough, because it's such a, you know, even um, as a security professional, I, I have an Alexa on my desk. You can call it Ziggy now. Did you know this? Uh, You ever watch Quantum Leap? You had Ziggy, right? Is oh shoot, now it's activated again. Um, But but I, you know, uh, like you said, I I like to challenge my own because as a cybersecurity professional, you'd go, oh, why would you have all these IoT devices in your house, all these listening devices and everything else? And I'm like, no, 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 I get that. And I'm not arguing that. I've made the risk assessment to where I have a phone this is always listening and tracking, Uh, that ship has sailed. So a lot of our conversation, it's not necessarily about diminishing like, oh, you know, what was a real OT attack? What wasn't? It's like, look, this is the world we live in. Um, We can admire the problem or we can contextualize it and try to figure out a solution, right? And the solution isn't always remove all the Alexas from your house, right? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, So what are practical things we can do? And that's I try to take that approach especially in industrial because for the past decade we've been telling them hey you're dumb you don't know what you have you haven't patched anything none of your protocols are encrypted and a decade later they go yeah so you know power plant hasn't blown up yet so what else you got ron so that's kind of the approach i'm taking for this decade is like well all right let's bring a solution then
0: (laughs) so i've toyed with the idea of doing a podcast that's called do what i say and not what i do you know Because I do talk to a lot of security experts, professionals, even colleagues in journalism that really should know better. And yet, this is the stuff we do personally that makes people say, well, you're doing that. Why can't I? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I know my risks.
1: My grandfather was a plumber. And he always told me, he goes, never look at the pipes in a plumber's house. It's the most cobbled together, like you know, not to code, and and it's because we're doing and we understand that risk analysis. We're doing that in real time, and I think from an educational awareness stance, which is why I appreciate, even though it's kind of cringy, the zero trust monikers or the XIoT things. It's getting awareness out there. This is now a a dinner table discussion, which yeah. uh, which is exciting. Uh, My parents have never asked me up until the past few years necessarily what I do, but now they'll hear on NPR, they'll hear something and they'll go, wow, this is important, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is.
0: I'd like to thank Ron Fabella for discussing the concept of least privilege in OT devices and how we can and should start mitigating against active exploits such as the Mirai botnet. It's a crazy thing about information security. Just because someone has never done something before doesn't mean it won't ever happen. Then again, you can't possibly protect yourself from every scenario. I mean, some scenarios, they simply will never happen. So it's a balance. It's an art and science to come to the middle where you protect yourself enough to rule out a vast majority of cases. You'll never actually exclude them all. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. I've got some great stories coming up, including a discussion of wireless protocols and attacks from China and even Vietnam. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out.